Welcome to On the Other Side. Before we get into today's episode, a quick word from our sponsor, Forefront. Forefront is a community and media network for the explorers, builders, and artists at the frontier of collective creation on-chain. Forefront has an incredible newsletter that I cannot recommend enough. You can subscribe at forefront.market slash subscribe. You'll hear more about this later in the show, but for now, let's dive into this episode. I am here with Jesse Walden, who's a co-founder and GP at Variant. Jesse, I'm super excited to have you on the pod. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. I can't wait to talk about all of the things, why building in crypto is more like hardware than software, um, governance, minimization. But before we do that, maybe you can give a little bit of context on you and how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole. Sure. Um, I got into crypto about 10 years ago now as a founder. In 2014, I co-founded a startup called Media Chain. And evident in the name, we were focused on you know other applications of blockchains and specifically what they could do for you know non-financial digital assets, namely digital media assets. So a lot of the ideas you know being pushed forward today through NFTs are, are some similar ideas to what we were thinking about back then. Namely, we we wanted to make every piece of media on the internet ownable, attributed to its creator. Such a more the value could could flow directly back to creators online, um, and of course was a little bit too early. You know, in 2014, Ethereum didn't exist yet, so we're building kind of our own network, um, and there just wasn't a whole lot of activity in the space. Like all the activity was around Bitcoin, and um, anyhow, there, there was there, there was like some uh, stuff going on that was not particularly of interest to us at the time, but it was kind of the dominant narrative. It's basically just like enterprise blockchain or, or blockchain, not Bitcoin. was kind of the narrative that um, one of the one of the companies, enterprise companies that took an interest in what we were building was Spotify. They ended up acquiring MediaChain Labs that led blockchain R&D there uh, briefly. And and then I got into investing by way of running injuries in Norway. They were one of our investors. Um, and I helped to launch the first crypto fund there in 2018, invested that first fund and ran the first crypto startup school education program and real, real like looking founders at the earliest possible stage. Uh, so it's the primordial stage and, and that's sort of, that is what we focus on here at Variant. So it was fun, spun out Variant about three years ago, um, to, to focus on, you know, being the first checking in to, to founders, uh, getting off the ground and, um, we invest, I guess, I guess across the full stack and against our thesis, which is all about ownership as a keystone of new product experiences, you know, from developing to structure all the way to consumer applications. So that that's sort of what we do here at Varian. There's there's a longer backstory of how I you know got into you know why did I start a project in crypto in the first place, but I'll park it there. I, I think that's a good sort of start. Yeah, um, and of course, you know, your piece on the ownership economy has shaped. A lot of my thinking, which is wild, because I think that was almost three years ago um, that, that that piece originally came out. And I know since then, you've been doing a lot of thinking on maximizing ownership and minimizing governance, which I'm very excited to, to dive into. Um, part of the reason that I wanted to have you on, though, is also because you had this really interesting take that we'll just jump right into because I feel like there's so much for us to cover. I I, I want to make sure that we have time to do it all. Um which to me, I've been thinking a lot about like the consumer 
side of crypto and how we actually get to consumer adoption. And I think ownership as an experience is a big part of this. Um, but ultimately, like some of this comes down to the ability to just throw things at a wall and see what sticks. And you had this tweet um, that was basically saying like building on chain is more like hardware engineering than software engineering. And there are a ton mm-hmm. of implications of what that actually means. Can you talk about some of the thinking behind that take? And then we can dive into what that means at, at sort of scale. Sure. Yeah. I'm some first, I'm glad you picked up on that, on that tweet that, that I think, you know, I was, when I wrote that, <clears throat> I felt as though I was like, yeah, just going deep in, in the archives. I feel like I tweeted about this, that same idea, like many, many years ago when I first got into crypto and as a builder and, um, and, and it's just from my own experience and I, um, so, so I'll unpack the thinking, right? So why is building on chain more like hardware engineering and software? Well, you know, I think over the last 20 years of Silicon Valley, you know, the dominant sort of, um, mantra is, you know, to, to, to move fast and break things and, and sort of ship software iteratively. Um, but the, the trouble with, um, applying that mantra to, to crypto is that when you ship software in crypto, you're shipping into this like global computer, right? Like world, the world's computer, Ethereum, anyone can permissionlessly interact with it. And, you know, presumably what you're shipping is meant to operate autonomously and, and sort of, you know, on, and take advantage of the properties of this world computer, which is like, you know, 24 seven global autonomous operation, meaning like you are not in control of the thing once you ship it. So that's very much akin to hardware because, you know, Think, you know, think about a toaster, for example, or an airplane, maybe a better example. You know, once you ship it from the factory, it's out there in the world. It needs to work every single time, right? Like the airplane can't like, you know, have a bug mid-flight and, and, and crash, right? Um, the toaster can't like catch on fire. And, and you know, furthermore, it's really hard to recall if, if that is, you know, if that happens, if they're out there in the world, it's really hard to call back. Um, so, so shipping smart contracts on, you know, platforms like Ethereum is similar. Once you put it out there, it's, it's globally accessible, permissionlessly, um, you know, accessed by people all over the world. It's really hard to, to get that back um, unless you sort of implement controls um, over the smart contract, which kind of defeats the purpose of it being a smart contract in the, per- in the first place. So the, the, I think the cast, you know, the, the rub here is basically that, um, you know, when shipping software in Web3, you need to be extremely diligent to make sure that it's, you know, kind of correct by construction, meaning when it leaves the factory floor and, and goes out into the world, it's going to work sort of as specified every time. Um, and, and I think it's important to note, you know, this is not a hard and fast rule. I think there are exceptions and, and certainly like there are cases where it makes sense to retain control and update iteratively. Um, it's just, you know, I think it's, it's helpful to draw this contrast, you know, as to why shipping software to global computers like Ethereum is very different than, than shipping traditional software in Web2. Yeah. And to your point, and, and you call this out in the tweet as well, um, move that fast and break things feels like it, it created so many opportunities for consumer adoption and just like constant experimentation and, um, you just get way more shots at, at finding something that actually works and getting to product market fit. Um, this approach where it needs to work every time and you sort of give up control once you ship, um, definitely gives a lot fewer shots at getting to PMF. 
Um, and so I'm curious when you think about what this means for teams, particularly designing consumer experiences, but, but other, you know, types of applications as well. Like, is there a playbook for getting, for trying to maximize your number of shots at PMF? Um, you know, is, is there a strategy there? Like how, how can teams that are building on chain navigate that? So this actually might be a segue to one of the other things that I think you wanted to talk about, which is like thinking on complete versus incomplete contracts, which is sort of a framework I, I have, which I'll get to. But um, the I, I think one way that teams in, in crypto can sort of maximize their, their shots on goal is actually by minimizing the surface area of, you know, what is managed by their smart contracts on chain and essentially outsourcing a lot of the parameterization or, or like the fine tuning, the things that you would need to tweak in an iterative fashion, you might want to consider sort of just outsourcing those from the core of what you're shipping on chain. In other words, having the on-chain, you know, portion of what you're building refer to something that's off-chain or controlled by you or by other third-party, you know, operators that kind of plug in these missing parameters um, to, to make the thing work. And, and Essentially, what I'm describing is unbundling components of the system where they're the things that can be fixed and, and don't need to change over time. You know, try try to identify those things and sort of um, unbundle them from the things that you imagine will need to be dynamically tuned. Um, and, and and those dynamic components of the system, you know, rather than have those you know central to the protocol, maybe controlled by governance, you, you might want to have those you know controlled by the market. And in other words, having you know, free market participation and plugging in those parameters in a more sort of centralized way where, you know, a company or an individual, anyone can sort of permissionlessly plug in those components of the system so that there can be, you know, thousands of experiments and really rapid iteration. And I think we're starting to see this kind of framework of, of you know, more modular protocols um, being, you know, coming to fruition in DeFi to start, we're starting to see more DeFi protocols take this approach um, to, to building their marketplaces. Um, and I think that's a good thing. And there's probably lessons there for consumer applications as well. Yeah. Can you talk about like area, like specific projects in DeFi that, that you're seeing this, this type of model being applied? Yeah. I, I so I think like Uniswap before is a good, example um so, so if you sort of back backtrack the history of uniswap right like uniswap v1 v2 were very sort of simple and very opinionated you know the the, the sort of formula for the marketplace was x on y equals k right and so then like all all tokens had to adhere to those parameters and that was that was great the simplicity was a great um thing you know but it, but it was also risky right it's like what if that wasn't the best formula um, well, it would have been really hard to change and really hard to recall. This is your describing. So it's still, you know, very much like shipping hardware. It just so happens that it was the right one to get started. And then as the protocol sort of evolved with V3 and now V4, the, the sort of parameters of how the marketplace functions have grown more complex. So in V3, you can have other kinds of, um, of curves instead of X times Y equals K. You can have a different sort of function in the marketplace. And and V4 sort of takes that to the logical extreme where every dynamic component of the marketplace can be customized. And so I think what's really elegant about the V4 design is it does what I was describing earlier. It sort of unbundles 
the things that are dynamic and, and need to be parameterized from the core functionality of, of the protocol. So I think it's maybe we can contrast what a, you know V4 with V3. So V3 is still fairly opinionated about what the you know the parameters can be. It sort of has some some bounds with within people can within which people can get creative. V4 is very ex- sort of explicitly unopinionated. And then essentially, you know, by introducing this concept of hooks, it essentially allows any market participant to come up with their own kind of curves and, and dynamic parameters for marketplace. And so, you know, take a trading pair that's that's popular in um, in Web3, like, you know, ETH, USDC, very popular on Uniswap. V4 allows for any market participant to come up with a curve or you know parameters to trade that pair, and and what that enables is is the, the free market to decide you know which of these parameters is best for me. In other words, it gives consumers more options through free market competition to sort of parameterize the marketplace. Um, and and then the question becomes, okay, who's doing that parameterization, right? And you know, the answer is, you know, project, well, in practice, it's, it's companies like Gauntlet probably who are specialized, they're experts in this sort of risk parameterization in these protocols. And because it's permissionless and anyone can do it, you can expect there's going to be a lot more competition coming for Gauntlet. Like in other words, there's going to be many more experts entering the field to try to spin up these, um, you know, dynamic market parameters uh, to, to, you know, to make money. Um, and I think that's really good. You can contrast that with sort of legacy DeFi protocols. Um, and I won't name names, but there's, you know, there's a whole crop of DeFi protocols where the, the sort of parameterization is handled by governance. And so governance is decentralized, but, you know, in terms of its, you know, who participates in it, but it's logically centralized in that governance decides there's one sort of decision maker. It's, it's the token holders. And when governance decides, you essentially have central planning versus free market, you know, competition and iteration for the, the parameters that are going to best serve customers. So I think Uniswap V4 is a really good example of unbundling or separating the concerns. There are some functions of the marketplace that are static, like how to create new markets, how to route um, trades within the markets that are created. But then the specific sort of parameters for each market are left to third parties to parameterize. Um, and, and that enables much more rapid iteration, much more competition, and ultimately more choice for brand users. So I, I think that's a lot better than, you know, when contrasted with centralizing all that decision-making, logically centralizing it with governance. Yeah, I definitely want to get into what that looks like because some of that feels like governance minimization. But before we even do that, I am curious... I'm kind of going through my opinionated app era where I'm like, okay, I think consumer applications, at least at the onset, need to be opinionated. Um, and in the context that I'm thinking about, this is, of course, like friend tech as an ex- experience is interesting because they're they're building everything within the application. Um, and some of that is making me start to assume that, you know, consumers don't want to string together a bunch of different tools in order to build an experience. And and I guess a, a better way to put that might be like creators don't want to string together a bunch of tools to give their audience an experience. Um, and so in that context, I'm curious for something like Uniswap, 
Do you think that if they had gone to market with this way more modular approach initially, it would have been as successful as it is now? Or do you think you kind of need an opinionated approach at first and then you can, yeah. you can start to explore this? So, so that's, a, that's a really good question. And I, I think um, in, in short, I think it's um, simplicity is a virtue at early stage, right? Um, so it's a Uniswap just going with X times Y equals K. I think, I think, um, you know, that was the right move at the time, obviously, you know, in hindsight, 2020, I think there's a, there's a through line though, in, in you know, to strike the balance here, which is to say that, um, you know, modularity is really just an arc. It's sort of like a uh, systems architecture decision. Right. And, um, it, you know, on day zero of the thing, the new product, like for example, like day zero shipping friends.tech or, you know, consumer application, you can, you know, at you as the developer can be the sole kind of consumer of modularity, meaning like you, you know, are sole beneficiary, meaning you plug in the, the, the sort of modular piece and you're the only person doing it at the outset. The, the architecture decision that you're making in, in, in sort of architecting a modular way just allows for future extensibility and, and faster duration. So even if you are the only person sort of plugging in these parameters um, uh, for the first like year or two until you find product market fit, um, the, the architecture is just more scalable, more extensible, enables more rapid iteration. Um, whereas sort of, you know, decentralizing everything and having it controlled by governors kind of impedes all that. And, and so, um, yeah, I, I, I think like, the synthesis is, you know, at the earliest stage in a project, like you need to optimize for simplicity. And, and probably that means, you know, you being the sole parameterizer of the, of the thing that you're building, but architecting the system in such a way that it allows for that component to, um, that you're parameterizing to be sort of swapped out by you initially, but then maybe by others later on and, and, and maybe eventually by, by governance at some point. Yeah. Um, I think that makes a ton of sense. It is kind of interesting because it, it forces teams on some level to build, like in the context of social, for example, um, modular sort of social primitives and just keep iterating on a front end in some ways and some of these parameters, um, which I am curious how that how ultimately some of that ends up playing out in terms of just like constantly experimenting. And I guess whether or not we're getting those social primitives right is really the, the core question there then, um, which goes back to this idea of like shipping hardware. Um, you're like, damn, I hope this is the right model because we're kind of totally. betting on this. Well, well yeah. So, so tying this all back to, to the hardware thing, right? It's like, well, how, how does like hardware actually get assembled in factories. It is, it is very modular, right? Like it, it's not like the same company is like manufacturing all the screws that they're using, right? They're using modular pieces and assembling stuff. And, and that actually is what allows hardware to get mass produced. So I think that same analogy kind of applies to what I'm saying here. It's like a more modular architecture is very useful when shipping hardware because, you know, if one component in the system is screwed up, you can kind of replace just that component with another supplier. Um, so, you know, but then just to comment on, on, um, you know, the, the, the topic du jour, which is friends tech or, or just social applications generally, I do think like the, the, the social applications that's a key will make use of these, yeah, these social primitives or components, like for example, the, you know, the, the concept of, uh, keys in friends.tech, um, 
and, and have like pricing curve for that um, is, is a component of the system on top of which we're already seeing third parties build new interfaces. And yeah, there's a question like, is that component well too, like well parameterized, doesn't need to change? Like should the curve be different? Should the curve allow for more experimentation? And I think, you know, to give, to give the team credit, like they, they cut it where they, 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 they made one cut and put it out there and, and, you know, are seeing if it works. They crop, there's going to be a ton of things that they learn and need to change. And right. If the system is modular and, you know, more parameterizable, it'd be easier for them to do that. And, and presumably, you know, since it's still very early days for Plans Tech and for many other social projects, like the team that developed the, the full stack is going to be the one tuning those things. But you can imagine as more you know, people build third-party interfaces, like they might want to tune those things as well. And, and so, um, yeah, it's, I, I, I think, you know, modularity is, is just some sort of design principle that makes a lot of sense for this environment. Totally. Yeah. And I want to get into some of this governance minimization stuff, but one quick other question for you on the, on the social side of things, of course, it feels to some degree, like every social experience that we've been able to come up with thus far on chain is effectively just financializing some part of the social stack and heavily relying on like speculation as this virality mechanism. Do you think that's kind of inevitable? Like, do you think that things on chain are just mostly going to have this sort of financial um, element or do you think we're going to be able to move beyond that in terms of primitives? Yeah, it's a good question. So I, I think um, my view is, and, and this is, you know, the, the firm thesis, right, is that digital ownership is the new thing that blockchains enable, right? You can own your Bitcoin, you can own jpeg and nft you can own stuff on the internet for the first time that's that is the big new thing and so the applications that succeed are going to lean into that they're going to lean into ownership as a keystone of new user experiences um and and so the, i think the flip side of that is that there there is going to be inherently some sort of you know financial nature to ownership because they, they kind of go part and parcel right when you own stuff you know, you buy it and you, you can sell it, you know, that that's kind of part of the market dynamics, but something, um, we think a lot about, I know you thought a lot about too, is, is sort of the, the other kinds of experiences that one can have around ownership. So, you know, I, I would argue that the potential for, you know, financial appreciation and, and value is, is a big, you know, or I would say maybe even a primary um, experience that, that people want to have out of owning something like you buy, you, kind of, you want to live in it, but you also hope it's an investment. It's, it's not, it's going to appreciate in value. Right. So, um, I do think that those two are kind of, um, you know, very tightly related. However, financial sort of, you know, value is not the only kind of experience that people can expect from owning stuff online. Um, and I think the, the most like powerful applications in this space will will kind of lean into the financial aspect, but also enable other kinds of deeper experiences that are not purely speculative, like, you know, experiences of belonging to something or, you know, um, you know, just like having a memorabilia or something like that. Um, these more sort of personable experiences that are tied to ownership and, and by association may be tied to financialization, but, but not only that. Um, and front, I, I think friends.tech is experimenting along these lines in that they're trying to, you know, there's the, there's the shares 
and prestige rather and, and, and trading value, which is speculative. But there's also, you know, access and being able to, you know, have this private group chat. And, and so that, that's the design space that I think is kind of underexplored is, is how to like build experiences that are richer than just financialization, but, but still sort of inherently tied at the head. Yeah. And I also think, I mean, it, it's interesting to see why certain people got into crypto or why certain people started using different applications. It does kind of feel like speculation might be for a long time. I think everyone was like speculation bad. And I think we've gotten to the point where maybe it's like, no, speculation is actually maybe an interesting go to market if you're able to create enough value once you have people on your platform. Um, in the same way that, you know, you might buy an NFT in in at least the nft craze i think a lot of people bought nfts because they thought number would go up but they kind of stayed around for for the community come for the the bag stay for the community type of thing um and so yeah part of me wonders also if if some of the speculation stuff is is kind of how you how people initially justify getting into something and then ultimately you build these robust ownership experiences that that make them want to stay yeah i i mean Absolutely. I, for, for, like, I, I think the history of crypto proves out exactly what you're saying, right? Which is like, if you, you know, the origin of, of the whole space started with Bitcoin um, was speculation, right? Like someone had to believe that Bitcoin was going to appreciate in value in order to be incentivized to mine it day zero, right? Like you had this group of early believers who were, I guess, tied by the ideology of the thing. Um, really wanted to exist and also believe that it could have, you know, could, if it worked, it could appreciate in value. And that's what kind of bootstrapped the whole network into existence um, and created this virtuous flywheel of, you know, people, miners securing the network, which in turn made Bitcoin more valuable and in turn, you know, incentivize more miners and so on. So I do think that, you know, spe- speculation has proven, you know, through the history of crypto, but also really zooming, zooming out even further, you know, the history of technology, speculation is what drives technological progress. Like that's the story of venture capital. That's the story of what the industrial revolution is. You needed speculative capital to come in and, you know, fund renovations that led to, to, you know, technological progress. So I don't think speculation is inherently bad by any means. I think speculation is a great way um, to push forward uh, progress in in technology. And what's, what's sort of different this time, and and this is the double-edged sword part is, the speculative, the speculative nature of this new sort of technological frontier is accessible to everyone, you know, anywhere in the world with an internet connection. That's that's sort of the new thing um, that leads to these much more what, what I, you know volatile kind of markets and 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 blowups and um, and so there's good reason to be uh, critical of that, right? Because people do get hurt, um, but it's important to remember, you know, when you know during the speculative frenzy, uh, like the steam engine, for example. Um, when, when railroads were first coming about, like the steep, you know, there were tons of steam engines that blew up and like killed lots of people and like, you know, physically hurt people, um, because they, the technology wasn't like robustly developed yet. And, and that's just kind of, a, I think a feature of any technological frontier is speculation attracts opportunists. Um, it, it, it sort of brings masses in before the technology is, is really ready for prime time. But it's also the the driver of progress that that you know leads to the things that kind of change the tide. And so, I don't think speculation. I think speculation is a feature, not a bug. Um, but it needs to be handled with care. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, Forefront. 
Forefront launched in 2020 and holds a very special place in my heart as the first DAO that I ever contributed to. Since then, Forefront has become a steward of the crypto ecosystem, empowering Web3 explorers to create and participate at the frontier of collective creation on-chain. I subscribe to very few newsletters and Forefront is one of them because they just put out a ton of amazing content. They have essays, they have research reports, and they even do conversations with founders, but they're also incredible curators. Their newsletter is truly the best pulse on what's happening on the culture and creator side of crypto. And I actually use it to source guests often. Um, For those of you that might remember, I had Light, who's a crypto artist on the show a few episodes ago to talk about hypercultures. And that was actually an article that I originally found in the Forefront newsletter. So if you want to keep your finger on the pulse of these things, I cannot recommend the Forefront newsletter enough. You can subscribe at forefront.market slash subscribe. Seriously, you will not regret it. All right, let's hop back into the show. Yeah, it certainly feels like speculation. Um, Yeah, is to your point that you made earlier, like, one of the interesting dynamics that you can play with when you you create these robust systems that are actually owned by like large groups of people and it's part of the experience. It's kind of funny because um, another sort of um, experience that I have associated with ownership up until recently is governance, um, where it's like, oh, people want to govern things. And that seems to actually be pr- kind of untrue to some degree. Um, and to your point that you made earlier around governance as like this sort of um, single system, I think when you use governance or when you when you design governance systems where token holders are making decisions, you're actually creating a pretty um, singular mechanism for governing that is that kind of ends up being more of a liability than it is an asset rather than having, you know, interesting design space for people to plug in. And so this kind of brings me to this this, uh, mental model that you've been playing with around maximizing ownership and minimizing governance, which in the the context of being like, oh, governance is an experience of ownership, it's kind of an interesting mental model because it's saying, maybe don't do the governance part of ownership as much as as, as explicitly maybe, or in the same way that we've been been doing it. So I'm curious where some of that thinking is coming from. You, you sort of touched on the, the key point here, which is governance, um, I, I think has been um, kind of view, viewed as a panacea to, you know, for decentralization. So maybe backing up uh, or zooming out a quick, like why is governance such a prominent feature of Web3 projects, decentralized governance. Um, here's my sort of theory. So we have lots of governance tokens in crypto today, tokens that govern protocols, um, because the, the, the teams building those protocols wanted to make the protocols users owners as an incentive to get them to grow, you know, grow the protocol, grow the network, right? And, and, and you know, as we were just talking about, like we know that incentivizing people economically, um, even if speculative, is a great way to to bootstrap networks. And we, you know, we talked about the example of Bitcoin, right? So, so founders, teams building in this space have leaned into that, and they said we want to make our users owners um, and give them this sort of, you know, on- ownership of the protocol as a way to grow the thing bigger, faster. And and that, you know, I think that is absolutely the right idea. The specific implementations of how that ownership has been distributed, I think we haven't quite figured out the optimal, you know, or best practices there, but that's another topic. 
but directionally, I think that's the right idea. And, and if we can improve on the implementation detail of how ownership is distributed, it's a very powerful new tool in the toolkit. Okay, so teams teams have wanted to do this, and and, and then um, many of the tokens that have been distributed, their primary function is governance. Um, and what we've seen is that you know governance participation after ownership is distributed is incredibly low. And frankly, that's like not surprising to me at all, you know, because if you look at other areas where voting is sort of a primary feature of, of um, being in an in-group of some kind, governance is, is very, very low. So democracy, you know, gov governance participation, really low. Even worse is um, corporate governance, right? Like shareholders have the opportunity to vote, like very, very few do. Why is that? I, I, I would argue that it's because, um, you know, control by way of government is not the thing, it's not the experience that most people want from ownership. What they want is economic alignment with, with the thing that they own, right? Like, why do you want to own a house? I mean, to limit it, but also, again, like you, you hope it's going to retain an appreciated value. Um, you know, why do people own stocks? You know, same thing. They, they want economic alignment um, with, with the corporation. They want to benefit from, from how the corporation performs, right? Um, so, so that is primary. Control or governance is, is definitely, I think, secondary, and participation is, you know, um, is limited to those who really have a very strong point of view, right? So, like activist investors or or people who are experts in the subject matter being discussed. And I think so. I think there's a lesson there, which is, you know, when thinking about governance um, in in Web three, you probably want to limit expectations on who is actually going to participate. And, and on what, right? So like th there may be components of your network or your project that, you know, some users do really feel strongly about. And I think a, like a good example is Mirror, the Web3 blogging platform um, and a portfolio company of ours at Variant, like they had this, um, th this, this governance feature called the right race early on where bloggers on the platform could sort of vote on whom else could could you know get access to the platform and, and write next thing this kind of week fun weekly contest um, to get to get voted in to, to be the next sort of you know cohort of, of users who became you know who theoretically can become owners later on. That was I think a good example of governance being really really limited um, in terms in terms of scope, meaning like there's one sort of decision you need to make: who is going to get on the platform. It was a subject that the the people participating in governance were experts on because they themselves were writers and had a strong opinion on who else you know they wanted in their peer group, and there was a, a regular cadence to it. It happened like once a week, right? So it wasn't overwhelming. So I think that's a good example of like narrowing governance to to a really limited set of participants, really sort of limited scope and a cadence that's not exhausting, um, and and that makes sense. Um, and I know I'm going on here. So just, you know, to wrap up the thought, you know, the, the reason we have governance as sort of the primary feature of many protocols today, I think is because um, there, there needed to be a claim that the tokens being distributed were sufficiently decentralized. Um, and, and so, you know, distributing control to government token holders was, you know, the argument was made, this is, this is sufficient decentralization. But in, in practice, I think many of the projects that have governance tokens, they, they are not sufficiently decentralized um, in the sense that governance participation is very, very low. And, and what you end up with is um, kind of informal hierarchy 
of decision makers on all top, you know, all range of things that governments can touch. Um, and I, I think that's very suboptimal. And, and, and so, you know, I'll, I'll park it there. I think there's another follow-up to this, which is, you know, what is, what is the more optimal way to do it? Um, but, but those are my thoughts on governance. So I'll, I'll pause there. Yeah. I want to talk about what, what the optimal way to do it is, but one like thought on that, it feels like in the same way that, you know, Uniswap V4 is constraining uh, parameters and, and making things very modular, um, and, and sort of using that in a way as like a, a governance mechanism or a way for, to give people control. Like when I think about what governance means, I think about, um, things like managing protocol parameters and making sure that you have the ability for people to change those things. Um, it's kind of interesting in, in similar ways with some of these social applications, which let's for a minute, like call mirror a, a maybe, maybe consumer application is the better way to put it. Um, it makes me wonder, you know, to your point about right race, like perhaps those types of containers are the equivalent of Uniswap, um, giving people the, the control and, and, making things a lot more modular, um, which is to say like you're defining a meta game that, that people want to play, whether it's with financial capital or with social capital, which I think was kind of the, the right race thing. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think there's an interesting mental model there in terms of how, what we can learn from DeFi on the, on the governance front, um, and moving that into this like consumer side of things. Well, well, yeah, I, I don't know if I would compare, like the mirrors right race and Uniswap before exactly like I, I think the right um, maybe a, a, a way to sort of compare you know governance generally versus you know what what we were talking about earlier with Uniswap before like the dichotomy there is a, it's central planning by way of governance versus free market you know enterprise at where so Uniswap before is leaning into free market enterprise and saying, hey, anyone in the free market who wants to parameterize a marketplace is free to do so. And, you know, let let the competition begin. Whomever, you know, does the best job, the market is going to reward them. Whereas, you know, other projects that lean heavily into governance are saying, no, governance is the expert here. Governance is going to decide the parameters that, you know, that, that the market wants. Um, and the problem with that, of course, is like governance is a monolith, right? In, in the sense that there's a lot of different participants, but there's ultimately like what governance decides is what the market gets. And, and so, you know, that's a slower, more cumbersome process, um, that I think like constrains innovation. And, um, now like where does, so where does mirror fit into this, like this framework of like central planning versus free market competition? Well, so, so mirror, I think, um, is, is, is saying like, you know, there is a place for governance, you know, but it's very limited in scope. Like it should, it should touch only kind of like, you know, this very small surface area where it's actually kind of fun for the participants to, to do it. Right. And, um, and, and it sort of enhances the, the product experience. And, and so I think that's like a good way to cut it. It's not to say that, you know, it's a binary. You have to choose only free market or you, you choose governance. Rather, it's, it's, it's probably, you know, some combination of both, which is where, where you can, sort of create a modular component that the, the, the free market can fill in, you probably should, right? But there may be other instances where having governance as, as kind of a meta game um, that's limited in scope, limited to, you know, in its participants is actually a feature and not a bug. And, and so that, that combo, I think, is a good way to, to think about it. 
Yeah. And, and I'm curious, like moving into the space of how you think about implementing this. Um, I feel like to some degree when teams take control and make a lot of it, take the fact that I'm using the term take control is like such a charged phrase. Um, but when teams are making a lot of opinionated decisions, um, I think there is often this like kind of moral judgment that gets, gets passed around, okay, well, is this really like decentralized and, you know, um, who is actually in control here? And so in the context of, of this conversation around saying, okay, well, governance as a monolith is definitely not the way to run the company. And it's certainly not the way to run a consumer application that needs to get to product market fit. And, um, you know, teams that are calling the shots are at times, I think, uh, like villainized weirdly, particularly once applications start to see adoption. And so I'm curious how you think about that um, kind of, it, maybe it's not a trade-off, but certainly a dynamic. Yeah. No. Uh, so, okay. So yeah, like why, why are teams in crypto villainized for taking an outsized role? I think we should start with asking that question. Like why, why is that even a thing that we have to consider in the first place? Like that's not a thing in web two, right? Like in, in web two, you know, teams build products and then like people use them and, and like nobody questions, you know, why the, the team is in control of the thing until they're like Mark Zuckerberg scale and then, or, you know, Elon Musk scale. And it's like, okay, and why is Elon changing the algorithm? That's screwed up, right? So in Web3, why, why are teams like criticized for this? Well, I think it's an, it's a hangover from where the, from the origins of the space. So like the space really values decentralization um, as, as sort of a virtue. And, and I think um, that is important and it has its place, right? Like we need like, decentralization is a prerequisite for networks like Ethereum functioning, right? Like if Ethereum was not decentralized, it would defeat the purpose of everything built on top of it, which depends on decentralization for security and, you know, robustness and so on. Um, however, like, I, I, I think it's not the case that decentralization has a virtue for, um, you know, the base layer computing primitives that the blockchains offer. Um, necessarily should apply to everything built on on top um right decentralization of the underlying sub you know computing fabric of blockchain it enables all kinds of of, of things like new applications um it enables digital ownership um that doesn't imply that every application that sort of um builds new experiences around digital ownership should also be decentralized like i think that is kind of a, a, a sort of logical fallacy of, you know, extending the ide ideology of the word in the space to everything else that's to come. And, and I, I think that's kind of a, a flawed logic. Um, so, you know, what I would frankly love to see more of in this space um, is, is teams sort of embracing what we know has worked uh, over like millennia of human organization, which is a, frankly, you know, corporate governance, like top down command and control, a founder with a vision, um, you know, building, building something that they want to see in the world and they think people will use and, and doing that, you know, in kind of the lean startup way, which is fast, you know, shipping iteratively. Um, but, but sort of also, you know, doing so while with, with new tools in the toolkit, namely, you know, again, making your users owners as a new tool in the toolkit, you know, it'd be great to see founders trying to, to sort of juggle both these two things. Like, you know, let's, let's make users owners, give them, 
probably, you know, economic alignment with the, the products and services they use every day. And let's do that as a way to bootstrap the network and grow it bigger, faster, um, while also sort of, you know, having a, a visionary leadership team that, that shifts product really, really fast. Now, the, the rub here is that, again, what I'm describing is not sufficient decentralization, right? It's not um, the idea that has led to the, the underlying layer succeeding. It's a totally different idea. And there's not a regulatory framework um, for compliance here today. Um, there is a bill in the U.S. House right now um, that does create kind of a sandbox framework for projects that are not sufficiently decentralized to create tokens and make their users owners. Um, and, and I think that is directionally sort of where, where we need to go at the space. You know, the, today, the whole space, the whole governance token phenomenon is exists because, um, I, I would argue, of, of, of trying to satisfy U.S. regulators that, you know, kind of gave vague guidance on sufficient decentralization as a path to making users owners. I think that's not the optimal path for many, many projects in the space. Um, and, and, you know, what I just described, it would be more optimal for, for many, you know, making users owners without, um, you know, governance or as a, as a path to sufficient decentralization, but we need a regulatory framework to do that. And, and that's something I'm, I'm very keen, you know, to, to see through and, and that we're working on here at Baron with a lot of our chiefs. Yeah, I'm also curious, you know, you mentioned like people are mad about Elon changing up the algorithm. I'm curious where um, adoption sort of changes these things, if at all, um, where it's like easy in the early stages to say, yep, you should have a founder with a vision, hierarchical. It makes a ton of sense to think about governance as a feature of these systems, but not as the way that we're governing, um, you know, everything. Um, but once you do have sufficient adoption, it starts to feel like um, that's where you can get rugged, basically, or that's where you're rugging users. You have the ability to rug users. And so I'm curious if you think adoption changes the equation there for an application. Um, so yes and no. Um, I think that, look, it's it's a case that if you just look at, look at the status quo in the world today, like most things that people use or centralized, you know, centralized systems. And, and, you know, so long as the product is producing sufficient value, people are okay with that. Um, so, um, you know, so I, th I think like one argument could be that the new thing is, is ownership, like being able to become an owner in systems and, and benefit from their growth based on, you know, in, in, in a meritocratic fashion, based on your contributions. And if you can do that, meaning align folks' economic interests with the success of the products and services they're using, you know, again, that could be the primary change that people are looking for, not um, not control or 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 whatever. Maybe that's and, and then maybe at scale that changes, right? And so, the the counter to argue against myself there, I think the the counter argument is that if you're building these systems on top of you know decentralized networks like Ethereum, um, it's it's very possible, I think, to especially if you build it in sort of a modular way, it's very possible to over time progressively decentralized components of the system and control over specific components of the system. Um, and I think that scale of that, that can be, you know, a, a solution to, to some of the problems we see with scaled web two platforms. Um, however, I, I think particularly for consumer applications, like I, I would stress that I feel like that is sort of, a, again, a secondary concern for the vast majority of users. 
And the people, the participants in, in sort of a network that really care about control are more likely to be a limited set of, of the user base, like prosumers, developers, right? Like people who are using the product in an advanced way. And so, um, you know, when you think about modular architecture and, you know, distributing control, you should probably be thinking about that user base, the prosumers, the, the really advanced users, not the general consumer base that, that probably care more just about economic alignment. Um, so, so yeah, that there's two sides of it. And I think short term, it's, if, if the focus is growth, I think control is less important. Yeah. I also think th this example of something like using, uh, markets to effectively like create, uh, more efficient systems, like in the Uniswap V4 example is interesting because one of the things that I think seems to kind of not work is that once you reach P at some degree of PMF, you just like decentralize everything. Um, and it feels like part of the reason that doesn't work is just, you end up with like an incredibly bureaucratic system. And while it's yes, governed perhaps like a public good, um, you end up with this like situation where nothing changes ever. You kind of just freeze a protocol in time. And so I guess there's also like wrapping this all up together, a, a vision of what this like this ownership experience and governance experience and decent some decentralization, constrained decentralization basically can look like, which is actually quite different from the sort of like, okay, scramble to product market fit and then basically freeze all interesting things happening at the protocol layer. Um and well, yeah, so it's like yeah. It you know, if, if startups, you know, like a startup succeeding or finding product market fit, that's like capturing lightning in a bottle, right? Like it's, it, it's very rare if like, you know, and, and if you, if you do that, if you can capture lightning in a bottle, you don't want to let it go. Like you don't want to just like, you know, extinguish that. Um, you need to like seize, seize the moment and, and like move really fast to, to like, you know, to cap harness that energy. And so totally right. Like it, you, you know, I think it's a real kind of, um, it's a real shame that like the, the projects that have succeeded at any meaningful scale in this space often um, lose their their founders and core contributors. Um, uh, you know, in once they once they decentralize, in many cases because um, th those founders and, and contributors are scared to to participate or or like you know because they the, the they're operating under the guise of decentralization. And, and they, they don't want to be perceived as the sort of, you know, dependency that the community of users um, relies on. I, I would argue, you know, it would be far better for the space as a whole if those founders could continue to contribute after they've decentralized ownership, right? And, and but again, this, the, the compliance regime of sufficient decentralization does not create a clear path for that today. And, and I think that's holding back innovation in the space and needs to change. Yeah, totally. Um, I think explicitly saying that and starting to push that narrative, even as, you know, some of the compliance stuff is, is still like being worked out and, and still remains like unclear, mostly because I think it's also a cultural shift where people, in order to justify some of the decisions that have been made, either from a regulatory perspective or just like decentralization maxis, basically have really, I think, push this narrative around founders not having a ton of control or really anyone within a system not having a ton of control. Um, and so I, I think that perspective is, is 
important to call out and highlight across the space. Yeah, one more thought to add there, just, you know, because I don't want to give folks the impression that I don't care about decentralization. I think decentralization has its place, again, like certainly in the lower level infrastructure, like tokens don't make any sense. Governance doesn't make any sense. So it can't be effectuated on a decentralized system that is, you know, that you can trust because of decentralization. At the application layer, um, I think, you know, there are new primitives, like new ways of effectuating governance that will benefit from the decentralization of, of the underlying system. So like a great example is, you know, Malak Dao has this, this concept of rage quit, right? That is a governance mechanism that doesn't exist in corporate governance. You can only kind of rage quit with all your assets because you have a smart contract based platform that can like effectuate that, you know, your decision to pull out with, with everything. So I think we are going to see innovation in governance as a result of, you know, governance being effectuated by smart contracts. And that's exciting. And so one opportunity um, I see is to sort of formalize, you know, hierarchical decision-making like we have in corporations, but enhance it with smart contracts, right? Like make it more legible, you know, make it more fluid and liquid and, and sort of frequent who is getting delegated and for what. Um, Right. And I, I think we haven't seen enough experimentation here. Like we, we have some delegation systems. They're not, you know, they're not, um, frankly, that interesting. Right. Um, and, 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 and so like what I would love to see more of is just more formal, um, uh, hierarchical command and control systems. Cause that, that works in, that's what scale of most of, you know, human civilization. Um, but where we formalize the systems and enhance them with the new properties that smart contracts enable. Um, and then, and like, I, you know, I gave the example of the lockdown rage quit love, would love to see more sort of mechanism design experiments like that, that make, you know, centralized leadership more accountable to, to, um, you know, stakeholders because they, these, these new tools in the toolkit. Yeah. There's, there's definitely something there around like consensual hierarchy in a way where you, you want to have the consent of the governed, but they're also acknowledging that the most efficient way to organize is not necessarily just full, utter decentralized chaos. <laughs> the best analog here in is, you know, there are examples of multi-billion dollar organizations like Vanguard was a mutual fund owned by Caesars, right? Um, where like, and it's of all the examples of, of scale user owned organizations in the world, they all have adopted hierarchical management structures. It is not flat. Right. Um, and, and so like, I think crypto can learn from that, but probably also enhance the way those, those, um, management systems work and how accountable they are because the underlying systems are decentralized autonomous. And so we can innovate the, the sort of mechanisms that hold leadership accountable. Yeah, totally. Um, well, Jesse, this was such an interesting conversation. I, I always enjoy, um, hearing what you're thinking about. Where can people learn more about what you're doing at Variant, read your writing, all of the things? Yeah, um, on on all the writing is on our blog. We all publish kind of our, our own things, but we aggregate everything at variant.fund. So that's where all the ideas are. And we, we try to share our thinking publicly. So um, we're, we're always putting out stuff there. So check it out. Beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was really fun. Yeah, super fun. Thanks for having me.